Uh, just by way of introduction, I should maybe explain our opening slide. Do you remember those uh, living and growing classes at, uh, at school? Well, if you had the misfortune to miss them or you've forgotten them, well, here's a golden opportunity to relive them. <laughs> well, not really, but the passage we will be looking at today is but part of a larger treatment on the whole issue of marriage, divorce, singleness. And to do justice to each would require a series of talks and uh, careful study. Therefore, we're going to be focusing on one particular passage today, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, which really looks at and focuses around the whole issue of sexual relations in marriage. Well, hey! <laughs> you know, the whole ideal of marriage, you know, of two couples or two people coming together, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, sorry, this is Mary's. Nothing, nothing weird, all right, all right. I hope that wasn't a Freudian slip. Yeah. Anyway, two people, a man and a woman, coming together. Uh, you know, the whole idea, you know, till death is due part, you know, the ideal of marriage has never changed. But the appreciation of it and their confidence in it towards safeguarding and prolonging such a relationship has diminished over the years to the extent that today it stirs up fears of long-term commitments, especially in an age when such a thing seems impossible. You know, if marriage was likened to a, a wall, you know, a healthy sex life in a marriage is an important element in the mortar a vital substance that goes towards ensurance, the strength and the stability of the wall. And if the mortar is weak or the scant trace of it, the wall is vulnerable to outside pressures and eventual collapse. The illustration, the next illustration on the screen should come up. I think. Is there another one? Yeah. You know, it captures something of the caricature that the world paints of sex within marriage. And to be honest, you know, this is a far cry from what God had ordained it to be. So therefore, let's turn to the text. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 1148, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 to 7. I'll just give you a moment to look that up. It should also appear on the screen as well. It reads, Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time 
so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. You know, when we thinking of Paul's um, opening line there, now for the matters you wrote about, it is a good for man not to have sexual relations with women. Most scholars would agree that Paul isn't necessarily expressing his own opinions on sexual relations, but rather, in a way, he's summarizing, he's even quoting uh, a title of uh, something he's received in the Corinthian correspondence. And from the reading of the text, it can be reasonably unfair that Paul is turning his mind now to something that has been arising or has arisen within the fellowship at Corinth. You know, and goodness, what a, what a church it was. Never a dull Sunday in Corinth, it would seem. <laughs> you know, particularly when you scan the entirety of First and Second Corinthians. You know, in Corinth, as we know from what Jude was sharing last week, you know, it was a place with a, a long history and a tradition as a center for vice and fornication. In fact, it was a, a euphemism coined by the more haughty Athenians that to Corinthianize was a byword to indulge in a bit of hanky-panky. <laughs> you know, and as a seaport, prostitution was still rife in Corinth as in its heyday of the, the thousand prostitutes of the temple of Aphrodite. And you know, when you add into the mix a prevalent male-dominant societal norms, it kind of makes for a hostile environment for even the concept of marriage to take seed, let alone to survive. So it's against this backdrop that perhaps it was a reaction to the, the excess in Corinth, you know, recognized for its immoral lifestyles, that revolved around the sexual practice in the city, that, that some overzealous bright spark thought it was more God-honoring to abstain from all sexual practice, even between husband and wife. And therefore, you can imagine the friction and the controversy that such an ideal being encouraged, promoted upon couples and new converts. It's not difficult to imagine. And indeed, it may have been a cause for some of the disputes and lawsuits that Paul had chided him for earlier in chapter 6. So undoubtedly there's arisen a, a, a mindset, a, a school of thought that celibacy is to be encouraged to the nth degree, even in the realm of marriage. It seems that among some of the believers that there's been this strong emphasis that to achieve spiritual maturity or some kind of higher spirituality, that abstinence from sex is the best way to get there. But Paul, ever the, the pragmatist, herald of common sense, and importantly, one considered trustworthy of the Lord, brings a sober judgment to the whole issue of sexual relations. And it makes me think that, you know, I don't think there's ever been a time in human history past the fall when we've achieved a balanced and a proper appreciation of sex. You know, even in the past 200 years, we've swung from one extreme to another, and I dare say it probably will again. You know, the Victorians never spoke of it. Today, it seems we can't get enough of it. 
Whether we want it or not, it's here. It's there. It invades our homes through every media. And a thousand other voices expressing their opinions and views on what is balanced, what is appropriate, and particularly for ourselves, what ultimately is godly. To that end, we're spared, to some degree, the moral ambiguity of the rest of the world. We've been given a safe boundary, and it's called marriage. And that leads into my first point, that sex has only ever had one bed, and that's the marriage bed. You know, it's a bit like a New Year's speech. <laughs> Just for the purpose of the illustration, I'm saying this. <laughs> You know, in any other environment, stripping off would be recognized as inappropriate. Immoral, illegal, wicked even, but within the, the confines of its geographic, geographic boundary, everybody knows that this is a place where it happens. There's no need for shame or embarrassment because this is the thing in its proper place. It's there, it's where it's allowed, it's where it's expressed. So Paul responds, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Praise God for marriage. Sex was designated for marriage. You know, and what a lovely thing. Marriage is the environment. It's the habitat. It's the sanctuary where a man and a woman can know one another so intimately. And it's a place where there's no need for shame. There's no need for embarrassment. There's no need for guilt. But you know, today, like Corinth back then, sex has been taken out of its natural habitat. And it's been reduced to a means of recreation, entertainment, sometimes a tool of abuse, manipulation, and perverted into a commodity for sale for those who are prepared to pay for it. And hence, sex can be a, an uncomfortable subject. And perhaps to some of us, it brings to mind not just pleasant thoughts, but painful memories. And perhaps feelings of shame or regret or even guilt. You know, the world has done a great injustice to sex. And from what we've read in 1 Corinthians, it's time to restore it to its rightful place. Namely, the marriage bed. So Paul goes on in verse 2, he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And this introduces my next point. We have a responsibility to guard it and protect it. You know, as I was preparing this talk, I was reminded of the, the Garden of Eden. You know, in, in a sense, um, marriage is like our last vestige of Eden. And like many gardens, it's so easy for it to fall into neglect. You know, tending a garden should be fun, but there are times when it requires a deliberate effort and time invested in it to ensure it's a place that both husband and wife can enjoy together and to halt the wandering eye of envying into somebody else's. But you know, thinking about the garden it just make me wonder you know if it was ever possible to recover or rediscover the garden of eden as it's described in genesis just as it was you know the home of adam and eve you could be sure it would be a 
an internationally protected site. It would be considered sacred, holy, a place of environmental special interest. You know, the international global community would do everything in its power to protect it and preserve it. But the thing is, you see, it still exists in one sense. And it comes into being when a man and a woman make a covenant to love and honor one another as co-equals before God. It harks back to those first few days of creation when God created man and woman in his own image. When the Lord brought Eve before Adam, it was a, it was a completion of the man and the woman. So therefore, we have a, we have a responsibility to ensure its sanctity and protect it. You know, just as the, the, the writer of Hebrew underlines, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, when Paul initially started this section in verse 1, he was undoubtedly referring to the particular ideals of certain members of Corinth, who naturally assumed that Paul would fall in favor of their abstinence ideals because Paul was single. He was unhindered in his service and devotion to Christ, and celibacy was an integral part of Paul's lifestyle. If anyone understood what they were trying to get at, then surely Paul would. And they were just waiting for the seal of approval almost. It would have closed the deal for them and given them permission to promulgate this idea of sexual abstinence as the best way forward to grow in spirituality. So it would have come as a bit of a blow to them, you know, when Paul responds, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. You know, in a place like Corinth that was prone to excesses and extremes, it's possible that Paul's advice wasn't met with much applause from either side. To the licentious, it would have come as something of a a shocking restriction and revelation that only the marriage bed was a place for sexual relations. But to the pious, it was a collaboration with the sex-obsessed culture of Corinth. But it was no less wise, because Paul recognizes that sex within the boundary of marriage was always part of God's design for the human state, and therefore was the expected norm as far as God and as Paul was concerned. So it leads me into my, my third point that sex is good, sex is godly in its right place. You know, we all need to read chapter 2 of Genesis. You know, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And the man said, now this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You know, there's another passage in Malachi, chapter 2, where we read an extract where the people bemoan the fact that God has not answered their prayers. And God speaks and tells them it's because of their disregard for their marriages. And it's primarily aimed at the husbands. It reads this, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and a wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
you know, it exposes a kind of sad reflection on the moral state of Corinth, that Paul should have to remind them of the, the basic fundamental relationship that belongs exclusively to marriage. And it's no different today. The concept of commitment, monogamy, is becoming alien. The concept, the ideal, the institution, the, the whole covenant of marriage is being eroded from external forces. But in its place, all we're left with is doubt, transient and casual relationships. There's an, an expectancy, even a, an apathetic acceptance that nothing lasts forever. But when you consider God's plan, it's a very different reality. The unity between a man and a woman in marriage is to be the closest relationship on earth. They become one flesh. And Jesus reiterated this when he said that what God has joined together, let no man separate. You know, and part of that whole dynamic of retaining that one flesh is to have sexual relations with your spouse. As Paul says in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So my fourth point is that we're encouraged to tend to our garden to avoid weeds. You know, marital duty could encapsulate a whole manner of things. But Paul is specifically considering and talking about the issue of sex and marriage. There's no steering around it. It's there, and if we're not fulfilling our marital duty, we're being, and Paul uses the word fraudulent, to a partner. Because there's a definite plan and a purpose and a healthy sexual appetite within marriage. And I think sometimes we suffer as much from the baggage of the culture around us as much as the Corinthians did back then. You know, we're just as much surrounded by a, a cultural climate that is forever pushing the boundaries of what is permissible, let alone moral. And sex is a powerful motivator. It really does sell. But when it's taken out of its natural environment, it becomes polluted and often a cause for pain, shame, and broken relationships. You know, it's interesting the way that Paul addresses it as a, as a duty, a responsibility to offer it, offer it to our spouse. Not a right to demand it, but to offer it. If no husband should ever have to feel like a punter, nor should any wife be made to feel like a prostitute. It is a gift for both, and it's to be enjoyed equally. You know, the caricature of and the urban myth even perpetuates the idea that the man is only interested in one thing and a woman a thousand other things but that. You know, but when it comes to seeking intimacy, we're not really that different. You know, in the Song of Solomon, it paints a very balanced picture of a shared passion for one another. As you read through it, it, it moves from a number of exchanges between uh, two lovers expressing their longing for one another. And it should be a defining feature of marriage. And to become one flesh is more than just poetic language. It does involve a physical joining. And I know sometimes there are exceptions for medical reasons or even past trauma where it has been possible, but even then there is the option of surgery or even counseling. What I'm trying to try to say is that we should never allow what the world has taken. It's taken sex and given it a bad name, causing us to be embarrassed by it 
or to even demonize it. Because in the first instance, it never belonged to the world. As much as the enemy likes to take things and abuse it, and he's turned it into something shameful, something that we're embarrassed by, remember he's described as a thief who comes to destroy. We have to remember that in the first instance that it was God who created it. And all that God had created, he recognized it as good. It was a given as a gift created and ordained by God as an exclusive delight in the realm of marriage. So, if it's your heart's desire to love God and honor him, then we can start by honoring our spouse in the bedroom. It shouldn't be an arduous task. On the contrary, God intended it for good. You know, and returning again to the Solomon Solomon, it's filled with poetic joy and reference to intimate relations. And this is but one extract. It reads, Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice of spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, O come, south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. You know, it was tradition that um, no Jewish boy was allowed to read the Song of Solomon until he'd reached the age of 13. <laughs> when you begin, we often have a tradition these days of, um, particularly when it comes to something like that, of allegorizing it and turning it into something. And there is lovely things in Song Holomans, but sometimes we just need to read it at its first reading. And when we do, you might be a bit shocked at some of the things it has to say. But it's a celebration nonetheless. And in Proverbs, here's another one. And it celebrates the sexual dynamic between a husband and a wife. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. You ready for this? Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You know, the Bible is unashamedly pro-marriage and pro-sex in marriage. The hang-ups that we have from it, they all stem back to our Greco-Roman influences from the past. That anything of the body is suspect pertaining towards wickedness. In marriage, we need to shake off those influences that would rob us of what God has called good. And for it to remain good, we need to recognize it as a joint gift, given and received joyfully. You know, far too often it's used as a, a bargaining tool, a means of manipulation to get what we want in a, a relationship. You know, the, again, the caricature is that the man seeks one thing and the wife will give it to him for the luxury of a pair of shoes. You know, <laughs> it's not meant to be like that. It's for both to enjoy, equally for the joy of it and the closeness it brings. So if your garden has fallen into a neglected state, then perhaps it's time to begin exploring it together and bring it back to life. Discuss and explore ways of tending your garden and make it an Eden again. You know, to, to neglect our sexual needs in marriage is to do so 
at our own peril, as Paul warns us. Because when God created us, he created us with sexual desires intact. And we dishonor it when we don't recognize it. And we don't allow it to thrive in the place where it should be. Because then what happens, it has a potential to deform into a wild weed that will seek sustenance and existence in the places where it shouldn't. You know, there was a time when the alternative to a happy sexual relationship was the top shelf of your newsagent, whereby you'd have to have the brass neck to even look up to that height. Today, the alternative is a far more accessible and much more secretive and often at the touch of a button. We each have a responsibility to guard our gardens. And one of the best and easiest ways is by spending time in it and expending our enjoying, expending our energy, simply enjoying it with the one we should be. But Paul does make allowances. You know, he says, when abstinence is considered, he speaks of it as a concession and only for a period. And for what reason? So that we might give ourselves over to prayer. And even then, it's as a couple. And this is another precious opportunity that we often have a tendency to neglect. The opportunity to pray together. And this leads into my, my last point. Play and pray together. You know, it might be difficult where one partner isn't a believer, but for those of us who are, we're, we're given a unique opportunity. In a position to stand with one another in prayer. Because so often we withdraw a spiritual life so far within us that our spouse has no clue of the burdens, that, the things that we carry to God and the things that God has laid on our heart. When Jesus said that when two or three of you are gathered together in my name, so I am there with you, that in itself should be an incentive to begin a discipline of praying together. And pray for one another. Pray for your family, your friends, even your enemies. And over that verse, the cord of three strands is not easily broken. Neither is a marriage tied together by praying together. And this is a particular weakness that often strikes at us guys. You know, maybe perhaps it's to be seen to be dependent on any other power greater than our own. Well, guys, you probably know already, but our women do love to see our vulnerable side, don't you? <laughs> but even more so does the Lord. It's a win-win situation. And just to close, I'd like to drop the last illustration. You and I make a great team, but I'd wish we'd score more often in many areas. But don't avoid the obvious one. You know, as we draw an end to this passage, Paul ends with that he wishes that all could be as him. But Paul was exceptional among the apostles with regard to his esteem for the single life and celibacy. Undoubtedly, it allowed him the freedom to serve God in such a way as to be unburdened with the interests of a spouse or immediate family. But he reminds us that to each a gift has been given. And to spend our lives envying what someone else has isn't the Lord's intention for us either. In marriage or in singleness, we're each given an opportunity to bring glory to God. So therefore, let us do it. Amen.